Hello everyone, welcome to The Refuge Family. It's so good to be with you again this Sunday afternoon. I'm just blessed to be able to study God's Word with you, and I just pray today that the Holy Spirit has just blessed you this week, Lord. As you've been home, as you still, many of you are still in lockdown, and we're still observing the rules the government has set forth to prevent the, just prevent the spread of COVID-19. I know it's been difficult, so again, I just want to encourage you, as you are we are a family in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. So please, please, if you have any prayer request, please bring them before us. We would love to be able to pray with you. Also, if you have any praises or you have a testimony of what God is doing or has done in your life, please text us. Let us know. We'd like to praise the Lord with you also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much. I thank you so much for this opportunity to worship you, to fellowship with you just to come before your people, to study your word, to see and learn more about just your will for each of our lives, Lord. Lord, as we look at that, Lord, I just pray your Holy Spirit would speak through your word, Lord. It would speak through us, Lord, that we would, our hearts would just be prepared to hear that. Our minds, our, just all of us, Lord, our whole being would receive your word, Lord, and we would use it, Lord, just to glorify you, Lord. Lord, we love you so much. We just want to give you praise. In Jesus' name, just be with us today. Amen. You're going to need your Bibles, so make sure and have your Bibles available. Also, we are taking communion, as you can see today, later on in the service. So you will need that also. So make sure and have that available. Let's start here with reading this scripture before we even get into the actual message. If you've got your Bibles open, please open them up to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. We're going to start there. As you open up, we're going to look at verse 4 through 11. The Sovereign Lord has given me His words of wisdom, so that I know how to comfort the weary. Morning by morning He wakens me, and opens my understanding to His will. The Sovereign Lord has spoken to me, and I have listened. I have not rebelled or turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a stone, determined to do His will. And I know that I will not be put to shame. He who gives me justice is near. Who will dare bring these charges against me now? Where are my accusers? Let them appear. See, the Sovereign Lord is on my side. Who will declare me guilty? All my enemies will be destroyed like old clothes that have been eaten by moths. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys his servant? If you are walking in darkness without a ray of light, trust in the Lord and rely on your God. But watch out, you who live in your own light and warm yourselves by your own fires. This is a reward you will receive from me. You will soon fall down in great torment. Thank you, Lord. As we read this, it just is a... You know, it's really, it's prophecy of what we're going to study today. We're going to actually be in John today and Matthew, but, you know, before we get there, just a quick review is who remembers what we've been talking about? Who remembers the message even from the last three weeks? Let's turn to Matthew real quick. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. We were actually in verse 36 or so. As we look through it, we can see that this is when Jesus prayed in the garden. Uh, Jesus and the disciples, they had just finished the Passover meal, or it's also called the Last Supper. And then they had went, after they re- they went to retire or for the evening and walked to the garden. 
Now, if you, if you continue in the passages there, as you can see, when they arrived in the garden, Jesus had prayed. He had prayed actually three times. And as he had prayed, he had asked the disciples to pray also. And remember, we had seen that Jesus had prayed so fervently, he had prayed so fervently for the will of God to be done that blood had come out as sweat. If you remember that right. And as this was all taking place, the disciples, remember, they had fallen asleep. Not once, but repeatedly. And they weren't, they didn't pray. So as Jesus had finished up praying here, we know as we studied that he was then betrayed. He was then arrested. And then, as this took place, all the disciples, they deserted and they fled Jesus. So we're going to pick up the story right after this, right after this happened today in John. So we're going to just turn to the right to John. We're going to be in John chapter 18 and starting in verse 12. So, are you there? John chapter 18, verse 12, as we pick up the story today. Let's read that verse. So, the soldiers, their commanding officer, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. Look at this. These, these leaders arresting Jesus, they considered him such a threat that they came with soldiers, their commanding officer, the Jewish officers. It wasn't enough that they had him bound as if they couldn't handle Jesus as one man with all these soldiers and officials. But again, they bound him. Just think about it. And look at all the men they came with. They were they had fear. Just think, It's amazing to me as I see this. One man they were so fearful of. Jesus is, you look at this, Jesus allowed all of this to take place. He allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be placed in them shackles. He did this for each one of us. So that, that way, as Jesus was bound by the shackles, this was the start for the process that we would no longer be shackled to our sins. Now, Jesus, we know that as you look at the scripture that the disciples have fled. And now Jesus is handcuffed. So now what's going to happen? What are the authorities going to do with Jesus? Let's look at the next few verses. Look at verse 13 and 14. First, they take him to Ananias, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at the time. Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, it is better that one man should die for the people. It's unique that they didn't just take Jesus right to jail. You know, because usually that's what would happen. They would take him to jail, then they would have the trial the next day. But instead, they're taking him to this leader right now. They, this shows us that they, these leaders, they wanted Jesus, they wanted him dead as soon as possible. Even though it meant breaking all their own rules. If you see this, you can see that he was taken to Ananias first. This was like a pre-trial or a preliminary hearing in a sense. He wasn't the high priest, but he had been years before. The Romans had actually replaced him with someone more, a high priest more of their liking, Cleopas. He was a current high priest appointed by the Romans. He was actually Ananias' son-in-law. Now, I'm sure, as you look at this and think about this, this didn't sit well with the, the Jewish people to have their high priest, which was actually a lifetime appointment, chosen, their new one chosen by the Romans. I'm sure most of the Jewish people still saw Ananias as their official high priest. And that's probably why they brought Jesus to him first. Now, Ananias still had a lot of power, but officially, and the one that would ultimately make the decisions was... Both of these men, they were very, very educated. They were high priests. 
They're educated in God's word. And both of them, both of them should have saw Jesus as the Messiah. But then they and all the other leaders were too concerned with their own positions and their worldly ambitions than seeing the truth of who Jesus was. This is what led them to denying Jesus as the Messiah and to killing him. Now look again, look again at that verse. You see, end of 14, it is better that one man should die for the people. If you would look back, he said this in John chapter 11, and he prophesied without even knowing it. He was so, this high priest was so concerned with keeping the status quo, he would have anyone killed for his own selfish ambitions. Jesus was going to fulfill what he had said here, or man's will, but for people, out of Jesus' love for each one of us, this would be fulfilled. You know, it's interesting, as you read, as I read my Bible, I sometimes read these stories and they seem like such distant places or far out stories, but as we read this and study this, it's amazing, as you were reading today about these high priests, did you know that just recently, is we have proof of this is true, Caiaphas, his, his tomb, his bones were just recently discovered and his name was on the tomb. So we know these things actually took place. It's just amazing as we read our Bibles, these are true stories that we still find artifacts even today that prove God's word is true. Just ponder that. And as we think about that, let's, let's move on to verses 15 through 16. Simon Peter followed Jesus as did another of the disciples. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest. So he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching the gate, and she let Peter in. As we're studying this book of John, it's interesting that John doesn't identify who the second disciple is. But he's commonly accepted, and I believe, and most everyone believes it, John is actually the second disciple that's spoken of in this passage. Now, obviously, if you look at it, it's obviously that John had some connection some which way so that he was able to go in with Jesus, and even to allow Peter to get as far as the courtyard, just which would be just outside the house. You know, as I read this, I always like to put myself in the story, like, you know, filming a movie or just in my imagination. And, you know, as I think of this big house, this government official's house and the big courtyard, I can see that this house maybe was somewhat similar to a house or a courtyard we'd even see here in Myanmar, in Yangon. Maybe very similar to a very wealthy or influential person here in the city. I think many of us can picture a house like this that's around us. Think of, an, think of a very large house that would have a, a, you know, a large gate and a large fence and a courtyard. And, you know, as they have these, most of the people that I know that have these large properties, they also have, you know, maids and groundkeepers and gatekeepers and maybe a guards. And usually, as you think about that, is they have these large fences and all these different things going on. There's also usually, you know, a, ho a house for each of these people that work there, for the maids, for the guards. You know, I even, I know people right around me that have houses like this. And I'll tell you, if you go up to them, the big gates and the fences, you have to know someone personally if you're going to be let inside their gate. Because... They're not going to let you in. That's their job and sole purpose is to make sure and keep people out that were not supposed to be there. Now, if you were to go inside of these houses, inside these gates, uh, you would see typically, especially in the evening time when it's cooler, uh, you would go in there and there'd be areas where they would, the servants or the workers even would, they would congregate. They would hang out. And 
you know, as I think about this and I picture this in my mind, it's easy for me to get this context here in Myanmar. I know in Western culture it's a little harder to imagine, um, but we do see this situation everywhere in Myanmar. Even some of my close friends that have some very large houses have this similar type of situation where they have a gatekeeper and a, a person that will come in and they have a courtyard. In fact, you know, even my neighbor across the street has a gatekeeper. And he, his sole job is to open and close the gate and make sure and keep people out and run security. So as you think about this, just picture in your mind this house and this gate and the, the courtyard and the servants. Just put yourself in the story. As you put there, yourself in this story, imagine Peter. We know Peter. We know his background. We know he was a fisherman. So he wouldn't have fit in to say. In fact, he probably would have fit closer with the servants. So imagine yourself walking with Peter being allowed to enter through the gate into the property. Are you inside now? What do you see? What do you feel? What's it like inside that courtyard? What's what's taking place? So let's see what's going to happen in verses 17 and 18. The woman asked Peter, You're not one of the man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. Are you still in the courtyard, as we read that verse? What did you just see happen? What did Peter do? This was P Peter's first denial of Jesus. And I think as we see this denial, it's related to Peter. It's, it's related to Peter's trying to he's trying to blend in with the people because he has fear he has fear what would happen to him if they found out he was a christian a follower of jesus so he's just trying to blend in it's a fear and then after he denies jesus he stands with them he takes comfort with them as he gathers around the coal fire charcoal fire and he, he takes that warmth of that fire he becomes almost a part of that group peter has both denied jesus with his words, but also, I really see with his actions. I tell you, I, I, I don't think we can judge Peter too harshly. I'm not sure many of us would have a different reaction if we were put in that same context, in that same story, in that courtyard. I'm not sure what we would do. Well, let's look inside the house and see what's taking place. Let's look at verses 19 through 20. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching them. Jesus replied, Everyone knows what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and in the temple. Where the people gather, I have not spoken in secret. At this preliminary trial, Ananias, he begins with asking Jesus questions. Because they didn't have any real witnesses. Look at, look at the passages. Do you see the two questions he starts with asking Jesus? The first one I see right away is he's searching for who are his disciples. And the second he's asking is, he's trying to get Jesus really to incriminate himself by explaining what doctrine or what he had been teaching. Then we see Jesus, he responds, you can just go ask the people what, I've, what they've heard in the messages I've preached. Because Jesus had taught everything openly and in public and everyone had heard. Jesus openly was sharing the good news. He was sharing the gospel. Now, this is very unlike what was taking place right now with Jesus in this preliminary trial with these religious leaders. They were doing this in the middle of the night in his house in secret. And look, Jesus actually never does answer the question about who his followers are. 
But instead he tells the high priest to bring forth witnesses. Bring forth witnesses to testify about what he was teaching. Jesus knew that the Jewish law required two separate witnesses to come forward so they could testify on such a trial as this. So let's see, what do you what do you think these religious leaders, Ananias' response will be to Jesus? Let's look at verse 22. Then, one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is this the way to answer the high priest? He demanded. Can you picture this? I'm sure this was a very hard slap. One done with anger. Think about this. Are you in the room still? I asked you to imagine yourself in the room with John, with Jesus. Could you imagine this taking place? Can you visualize this taking place? Can you hear the slap across Jesus' face? Can you feel it? Can you feel the sting, the burning of your own skin as Jesus was slapped? Now, John was there. We know that. I imagine, and I, you know, we don't know exactly, but I imagine Jesus looking right at John, maybe, as he was slapped. I can imagine myself in the picture, and Jesus looking at me, with his hands still bound, standing there, with the red welt forming on his face. Just imagine yourself in that picture as this is taking place, as he's being falsely accused. Jesus, just think of this, the one, our God, the one who spoke the very universe into existence. The one who has given us life. This one, Jesus, is allowing this abuse to take place so that each of our sin could be forgiven. Again, just put yourself in this story. See Jesus being slapped. Feel it. Look at Jesus and know as he he went through this, this abuse, he did this for you. So what's our reaction as we think about this and what Christ has done for you? Let's see what Jesus is going to do next in verses 23 through 24. Jesus replied, If I said anything else, you must prove it. But if I am speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Then Ananias bound Jesus and sent him to Cleopas, the high priest. Jesus, he just takes, he accepts his physical abuse. But then he asks them, justify your actions. But nobody could. So now we see Jesus has been sent to the official high priest. And to continue this, we need to turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. So turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be in verse 57 now. Let's read verse 57 through 58. Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and sat with the guards and waited to see how... It would all end. Now we know that Jesus, he should have been taken to the temple for a trial. That was how, it should have been an openly public trial. But the leaders, they're continuing, they've continued to try Jesus in secret. They wanted to get this trial done before the Sabbath. They wanted to rid Jesus beforehand, before the Passover. Now, in a sense, this really was almost a second trial, right? And again, it's in the middle of the night. Now, as we continue the story in Matthew, I'm not really sure. It doesn't say what happened to John, but we can definitely see that Peter is secretly followed behind. Now, remember, in John, we learned that Peter had first talked with the servants, and then he denied Jesus, remember? And then he stood with them. He warmed himself by the fire with them. But now, Peter, he's gone on to the next place. And he's again, he's blended in right with the servants, with the people. 
He's now sitting with them as he is one of them. He's watching. He's waiting. He's going to see what's going to happen. You know, as I read this and I thought about this, I think that Peter's sin of denying Jesus is progressing. His actions, they paint a picture in my mind, in our minds, of how sin works in each of our lives. First, it was a brief conversation or a thought. And then it progressed. It progressed to him standing or truly entertaining the idea. And then he entered into it. He joined in. Or he sat with them. He became one with the world around him. Turn real quick just to Psalm 1. I want to look at something really quick. Psalm 1. Let's look at just a first, first verse. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with markers. It's a progression. Sin doesn't usually just pop into our lives, right? It doesn't usually just happen. It's usually progressive, and we can usually see it coming into our lives step by step. When we see this progression, like Peter should have saw, as we see in Psalms, we need to smash it right at the start before we join in with it. Turn back to Matthew. Matthew 26. Let's look at verse uh, 59 through 61. Inside, the leading priest and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus. So they put him to death. So they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give fault witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. This high council, the Sadducees, this was the leading Jewish authority. It's true, you know, in, in Israel that Rome ruled. But among the Jewish people, the high council still had authority over the local people. They had power to make decisions concerning the daily lives of them, of them people. When you look at this trial, as we start looking at this and looking at what they did here, not only were these witnesses lying, but really the entire trial was illegal. The high council had rules how a Jewish person or citizen would be tried. I just want to look at a few ways they've broken their own rules. First of all, we know is that all trials had to start and end during the day. This was taking place at night. Also, all trials must be heard in the temple, in public, not in someone's, not in private in someone's house. Also, no trials could ever be tried during Passover, which they were doing. Also, if a person was to be found guilty, the verdict had to be issued the next day, just to let everything settle down. Also, as far as the witnesses, in a, a trial like this, there had to be two separate witnesses, not two together, like they had here. There's many other rules broken. The point is that these leaders, they had no real evidence to convict Jesus. But this council was going to do whatever it took to bring a quick and guilty verdict upon Jesus. I mean, these, these witnesses, they, they twisted Jesus' words. They said that he would destroy the temple. But we know that Jesus was speaking to himself. In fact, let's look at that passage real quick. Turn back, hold your finger there in Matthew, and turn back to John, chapter 2. Forward to John. Chapter 2, verse 19. It says, Jesus replied, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now look at their testimony back in Matthew, verse 61. These, this witness says, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Do you see how these witnesses twisted Jesus' word? It didn't matter. These people had already all made up their mind. They were blinded by their own fear. There was nothing that anyone could have said or changed their hardened hearts. These leaders, they weren't going to allow Jesus to live because he was a great threat to the power that they had held. 
And Jesus knew this. So let's look at his response in Matthew chapter 26, verse 62 through 63. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus, he just stood there, bound, shackled, knowing exactly what was going to take place. He remained silent until he was called to answer before God his very identity. As I read this, I thought, what would I do if I was standing before a court, being accused falsely, but knowing the penalty was death, being asked, who are you? I don't know. I know what I was supposed to do. Jesus didn't, he didn't even respond to these false charges. But Jesus, he's going to answer this next question. He says, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Again, what would you do? Would you profess that you are a Christian and sign your own death sentence? Let's see Jesus' response in verse 64. Jesus replied, you've said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand, in the coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is very clear who he is. Jesus clearly states to everyone, he is the Messiah. Jesus is very straightforward. He's as straightforward as the question that was asked. Jesus responds, you have said it. And Jesus, he continues. He stated, he states that one day the roles will be reversed as these leaders will be coming before him and he will be seated at God's right hand in the heavens. Jesus is telling them and all of us that we will all see Jesus in his glory. I can't even imagine this. Think of these leaders looking up to Jesus as he's at the right hand of God, looking up trying to answer for what they've done. What a picture that Jesus paints here as he, he explains this to us here. Our world one day will be flipped upside down, and one day every knee will bow. You know, I look forward to this day, to be bowed before our Lord Jesus Christ in reverence and in love, not like these religious leaders pleading for forgiveness. So what do you think after Jesus has said this? What do you think their reaction is going to be? Let's look at verses 65 through 66. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his whore and said, Blasphemy! Why do we need other witnesses? You've all heard this blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. These leaders, they never even considered Jesus was telling the truth. They felt they had too much to lose. You know, it's amazing as I think about this. Many people today follow this same pattern as the religious leaders, never even considering that what Jesus says is true. Because they, if they were to believe that, they believe they have too much to lose, too many things of this world. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's a backward view. The cost is too high not to believe in who Jesus is. Let's read the last two verses today, 67 and 68. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fist. And some slapped him, jeering, prophesy to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? They spit on Jesus' face. But think about this, and I read a lot on this. This wasn't just normal spit. They did this. To humiliate Jesus. As you think about this, this wasn't just the spit on the tip of your tongue. These people that had spit on Jesus' face, they would have breathed in through, rapidly through their nose, clearing their throat, and then bringing up all that horrible stuff that's in the back of your throat, all that nasty stuff, and then they would have spit that on Jesus' face. Can you imagine that? Can you put yourself in that room and imagine this taking place? 
these men spitting loogies on Jesus' face, and it dripping down his face, then Jesus just standing there, shackled, as the men then continued to beat him and mocking him as he stood there bound. You know, as I said earlier, Jesus, the very one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who's given us life, he's allowing this abuse to happen so that each of our sins would be forgiven. You know, it's just amazing to me as I think about that. Let's look at Isaiah again. We looked at it earlier, but I want to look at it again. As I read it earlier. Chapter 50, verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. Just think about what Jesus, just up to this point already, what Jesus has already endured for you. The physical pain, the humility, the humiliation, what he has done. You know, as I thought about this, and I read a lot of commentaries, I read one that I really liked and I want to share with you. It's from Spurgeon. And he suggested some of the ways that the men spit or spat in the face of Jesus. Men spit in his face by denying his deity. Men spit in his face by rejecting the gospel. Men spit in his face by preferring their own righteousness. Men spit in his face by turning away from Jesus. Just think of what they were doing. Now, as we close, I just want to look at two points, really. Looking at the religious leaders in the trial, and then also looking again at Peter and the disciples and their response to the arrest of Jesus. Let's start with the trial and the religious leaders. Again, we know this was this was not a trial for justice. It was a trial simply to accomplish a purpose. The high priest, the high council, the members of the Sanhedrin, all of them, all the leaders, they should have recognized Jesus as a Messiah because they knew the scriptures. Their very job was to point people to Jesus, or point people to God. But they were more concerned about preserving their own reputations and holding on to their own power and authority. So just like these religious leaders, you know, this still happens today. So we have to make our own decisions. Are we going to look at Jesus' words? Are we going to look at our Bibles? Are, do we see this as truth? Or do we see this as lies as the religious leaders saw it? You know, I believe there's people out there that have not accepted Jesus as their Savior. And I'll tell you, your decision has eternal consequences. This is truth. Jesus is the Messiah. He is who he said he is. And I think that today many people fall just as these religious leaders did by being more concerned with their worldly desires than following Jesus. We, as Christians, can also become more concerned with our own desires in turning people to Jesus. Just keep that in mind. It's a warning. I also would like to look at Peter and these disciples and their, their response. Go way back and think. Back in the back in the garden, Jesus and the disciples, they were all there together before all this happened. And Jesus, we know he knew exactly what was going to take place in the hours and the days that was going to happen here. Jesus knew what temptations lied ahead for himself and the disciples. He knew the pain that was going to happen physically, spiritually. He knew exactly what was going to take place. He knew all of this. So he's taken the disciples to a quiet place. He's taken them, given them an opportunity to pray with him. And Jesus said, ask the disciples to join with him in prayer, to pray to the Father so they would resist temptation. You can see that in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 40. Jesus prayed fervently three times in the garden, and he overcame. But remember what the disciples did? They slept. Jesus, he knew what each of the disciples would face. He knows what each one of us will face in the world. So Jesus had provided a place, an opportunity, and instructed them to pray. He instructed them to pray so they'd be prepared, prepared to face the temptations that we all face in the world. But the disciples, they failed to properly equip themselves for what was coming, what Jesus knew was coming. 
As they failed to do this, as they slept, we see the results here. We see the results of fear. We see it in Peter and the disciples as they fled. We see a faith that wavered. The disciples, they abandoned Jesus as soon as they didn't understand what was taking place around him. Peter even denied knowing Jesus. But look, Jesus had given them a time, a place, and instructed them to pray so they could have resisted this temptation. But instead, they slept. They should have been putting on the armor of God. But instead, they fell in temptation. I look at all of our current situation today, and I think a lot of us right now have a lot of time on our hands, perhaps. A lot of them have, we have a place, we have a homes, and I believe at this time that we are all called to pray, just as the disciples were called to pray in the garden. We're also called to be in God's word. I believe right now the church in a whole has a wonderful opportunity to be prepared for whatever season is next. Because I believe there's a great transition in the church. It's coming fast. And we need to be awake, prayed up, in the word and watching. A new season is coming, I believe, for each one of us. And we must use this time that we have now, today, to prepare. Just as Jesus did when he prayed in the garden, so we can overcome temptation, just as Jesus did for us, for this next season that each of us will face in our lives, and the next season in the church. We need to wake up and fellowship with God so we don't fall into temptation, so we don't fall into sin. A new world, a new church, and new challenges are coming right in front of us, I do believe. We must be prepared as the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is nearing. We're going to face more and more persecution. We're going to see things that we've never experienced before. But we can overcome fear and our faith wavering through prayer. It's the only way we're not going to lose our faith is through prayer. Let's follow Jesus' example. Follow His instructions. Be in prayer. Be submitted as Jesus was to the Father's will. Be prepared for whatever Satan is going to throw at us. We as a church... We need to walk into this next season season, without fear, full of faith, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this happens through prayer. We need to wake up. We need to fall on our knees and put on that armor of God so we can go out and preach the good news to all the lost people out there, to the fallen world. That's what Jesus commanded us to do, to go out and share the gospel. I want to share and close. We're going to have communion still, but I want to, I want to give you a quote by Chuck Smith. How ridiculous that they should bind him. But let me tell you, whatever they used, the ropes or whatever to bind Jesus, did not bind Jesus. Jesus was bound by something else, much more powerful than the ropes. He was bound by his love for you and for me. That's what caused him to submit to this. Not that they had tied him and were taking him as a captive. He was not their captive. He was a captive of love. His love for for you, his love for me. That's what bound Jesus to go ahead and face the cross. I just love that from Chuck Smith. We're going to take communion today. And I just, you know, as we look at this story, we've gone through John and through Matthew, and we see how Jesus, he was slapped, he was bound, he was beaten, he was spit upon. As we take the bread, take the juice today, I just ask that we would all remember, remember that. Remember as his body was broken and his blood was poured out for us, what it means for us. Just imagine yourself and what Jesus, what he allowed to transpire that each of us could have eternal life. Just take a minute to recognize that abuse that he took for each one of us. So he tells us to take bread and to break it as our bodies were broken. And take juice and do this in all this in remembrance of him. So I just ask that you would take the bread and take the juice and just reflect on the, these passages that we went through today. Just think about what Christ has done for you. 
It's just amazing to me. And I thank you, Lord. I, I thank you so much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as I read this, I just imagine myself there with you, watching. Lord, as you allowed yourself to be arrested, as you allowed yourself to be taken, as you allowed yourself to go before these religious leaders, Lord, as they humiliated you, as they called you a liar, as they slapped you, as they spit on you, as they beat you, all of this, Lord, you did for me. You took my transgressions upon yourself. Lord, I just thank you, Lord, for allowing me, Lord, to be saved, for paying the price of my sin, Lord. Lord, I just acknowledge what you've done for me. As I imagine this taking place, as I put myself in this picture, just watching this happening to you, Lord, I just thank you, Lord. I thank you for this gift, Lord, of my sins being paid for, of your covering, your life being given, your blood being poured out as a final covering. I stand in that today, Lord. I stand in that truth that you are the Messiah, that you are the one that died on the cross, paying our sin debt in full, but then defeating death and being raised again. So we observe this, Lord, and we look also, Lord, towards the future, Lord. We see to the promises that you've given us, Lord, promises of your Holy Spirit, the promises of our freedom from sin and our inheritance in heaven. So we thank you for all of this, Lord. And we take the bread. Please take the bread. And we take the juice. And we thank you, Lord, for what you've done. We observe that and recognize that you are our Lord and Savior. We praise you, Lord. Lord, I just pray that each of us, Lord, would wake up. We wouldn't be like the disciples sleeping. We would use whatever time and opportunity we have in front of us, Lord, to prepare, to be in prayer, to be in your word. Because I know, Lord, things are changing. A great transition is happening within the church. There's a new season at hand in the world today, Lord. A time of persecution, I'm sure. But a great opportunity for lives to be changed, Lord. Hearts will be softened, Lord, during these times. Lord, let us be prepared to go out there, Lord, as your soldiers, to go out there and share the gospel. So, Lord, I just pray for everyone, Lord, they would be deep into your word, deep in meditation on your word. They'd deep in prayer to the Father and praying for the Father's will, Lord. They'd be awakened to the things around them, Lord. Lord, I just thank you for this time that we've had today, Lord. I thank you for what you've done for us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm so glad you joined us here at Refuge Online. I just pray that your week goes well. I pray that you'll be in God's Word and you'll be in prayer. Because I know that each of us have a new season coming forth. We need to be prepared. We need to be ready. Because as a new season comes, there will be new temptations. Satan doesn't want us to go out and share the gospel. He doesn't want us to go out and speak the truth of who Jesus Christ is. So we need to be ready. And we can only prepare ourselves through prayer and His Word. So please join me this week in being in God's Word and being in prayer. And we just miss you all. And I'm so glad you joined us today. God bless you. Have a great week.